Now, some have on occasion asked me about the stained glass window behind me. I wish I could tell you a lovely story about all the thought and consideration that went into getting that stained glass, but that would be to defy the truth. The fact is, we found a local artisan who did stained glass. They ask a few questions, behold. Now, I like it. There's a symbol of the Trinity in there, besides the symbol of the cross. But something I actually hadn't known until recently is there's actually a symbol in there called Luther's Rose. Those five green areas are what are known as the Luther Rose. This was a part, if you will, of Luther's coat of arms. Whenever he would sign uh, letters, there would be the Luther Rose and a heart and a black cross in it. Now, here's what he said about that, and this is different. Ours is not that Lutheran symbol, although it has the five petals. He talked much about the cross, and that it is the cross of the crucified one that saves us. And in his, it was black, which he said, quote, mortifies and causes pain, but it leaves the heart its natural color. Inside of it was a red, outside the cross, a red heart. It doesn't destroy nature, that is to say, it doesn't kill us, but keeps us alive, for the just shall live by faith in the crucified one. Now, I will stop there just to say that's a little of the background. But this came to be true as well. The five petals of the rose, which you see up there, represented the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, sola fide excuse me, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Sola Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory. We find ourselves here on the 504th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We know that Luther the monk eventually becomes Luther the reformer, albeit reluctantly. When he finally turned the corner and embraced the role, he wrote a number of books defending the faith, a translation of the Bible into German, and then he did the worst, most unthinkable thing for a former monk to do. He married. The horror. Not only did he marry... He married a former nun. And Rome had already condemned him to perdition, but this certainly made him at least twice or possibly five times the child of hell as far as they were concerned. He initially did not want to get married because he assumed he was going to die as a martyr. And he didn't think it fair to get married and leave a widow behind. But he was eventually prevailed upon, and he married Katrina von Bora. And he loved her dearly. Uh, letters 
from him when he traveled still exists today. And he would, he, she was his friend, his lover, his favorite cook, and also his first-rate brewer of beer. Catherine knew how to brew beer. In fact, in one of the letters, he noted that he was excited to get home and see her and to enjoy her very skillfully made, apparently, brew. Now, that love for her spilled over into the way that he described his love for the book we just read, the book of Galatians. He called Galatians his Kate, theologically. Dear to his heart. And Galatians addresses problems. And specifically, a problem about the gospel. Now in our rather heated political environment today, we are witnessing all sorts of angry, hasty, Thoughtless and pointless things said and done. Can we agree on that? No matter which side you take in the fight, it's ugly out there. The battles which unfold seem to be all-consuming to those who are involved. The excesses of both declaration and reaction Try to make everything that happens of nearly cataclysmic importance. Not only for those closely involved, but I tell you, those on the outside looking in, unending, typically childish responses. See, our problem is, folks, we get worked up and upset and bothered about stuff that ought not bother us so much. And the thing that ought to bother us the most tends to bother us the least. Paul's dealing with the churches of Galatia. Now we think this is likely the area that we know today as Asia Minor, probably the region of modern-day Turkey. He is writing to churches like Derby and Lystra in the southern part of the region known as Galatia. Now, when you read the letter, this may actually be Paul's, one of Paul's earliest letters written in the mid-40s before the Jerusalem Council, possibly, as he's fighting for the gospel. What Paul is doing is saying that messing with the gospel is leading people to damnation, and that is completely and totally unacceptable. Paul will write to churches that are a mess and still call them saints, right? Corinth, I can't imagine pastoring First Baptist Church Corinth. That seems staggering to me. I've always been intrigued that churches intentionally chose the name Corinth. First time I heard of Corinth Baptist Church, I thought somebody had lost their mind. And yet Paul will look at the Corinthians and call them saints, called in Christ Jesus. 
Philippi had some fractures and problems, and yet they are saints in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, you start with these very positive words in Paul's letters, but you come to Galatians, and he just immediately goes into an offensive position. Why? A crisis had hit the churches in Galatia. The church came into being as a result of God's Spirit at work in Paul's proclamation of the gospel. But within a short space of time after Paul left, the church had been visited and infiltrated by false teachers. Paul calls them the ones who trouble you. They were convincing the Galatians of a pseudo-gospel, a false gospel. And Paul will not stand I know, one could argue, I suppose, there's nothing in this letter that's specific people at that specific time that's really that important today. But the fact is, my friend, this has not changed. The battle is still over the gospel. Think of it this way. All the great love songs were, for the most part, written to and about one specific person. But they're loved by all kinds of people. Right? We, we fill in, right? This letter, written to a people who lived 2,000 years before us, affects us as well. That was Leon Morris's observation. It's a passionate letter for good cause. Places where Paul and others have preached the good news are in danger from a group who's preaching a different gospel. Hear me, my friend. This is the thesis, if you will, the main idea. The good news is that Christ is enough. Now, we've sang that all morning. I got to tell you, folks, I got excited during the song service. Between the singing and the word that we read together and the testimony and the praying, I... I'm just sitting here saying, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This has been good for me already. And we come now to this text and a reminder on this Reformation Sunday. The good news is that Christ is enough. And that boils down to this. Now, I gave it a rather significant title. And maybe you're not aware of it. The title of the message, The Immutable and Effectual Gospel. I feel like you've got to keep those words in front of people, at least occasionally, or those words go away. Now let me explain what that means. Two things. The gospel cannot be changed. And secondly, the gospel creates change. The gospel cannot be changed, for it is immutable. The gospel brings change because the gospel is effectual. It does something. Consider this first. The gospel cannot be changed. Now, I'm not saying it can't be corrupted and messed with. It can Keep in mind to whom Paul is writing. These aren't intellectuals. They're average folks 
Paul states that he's amazed they've abandoned the gospel he announced to them. They could understand this gospel. In fact, if you look, verses 3 and 4 are a summary of this gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins or delivered himself over uh, to the, excuse me, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's wonder at this infidelity on their part is seen over and over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Chapter 4, Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He is stunned that they've bought another idea. Paul defends his apostleship and his preaching, declaring first in chapter 1, verse 13, he didn't get it from any man. Look at that 13th verse. You heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. At verse 12, he says, I didn't receive it from a man or was taught it. He goes on to say that it was only the Lord who had made it clear to him. It was the same gospel he affirms in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where he talks about affirming it to those at Jerusalem. The good news isn't complex in its announcement. It's quite straightforward. We're sinners. Christ died for sinners. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ is our representative. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. This is the gospel. And this is enough. Often I will be asked to talk to children who believe they come to faith in Christ. And it's always an interesting meeting because a lot of times little people are a little intimidated to come and talk to pastor. I understand that. I'm kind of large and loud. And I, I, I say this, and I'm, I'm just giving, parents, here's the heads up, all right? If you want to know what the conversation looks like, I'm going to tell you. Now, some of you are aware of this, and you may check out for the moment. Come back in just a little bit, all right? I set it up this way. You're talking to a friend of yours who's not a Christian. And your friend asks you, you Christians are always talking about sin. What's sin? I think you've got to have some concept of what sin is. Right? Don't need a Savior unless you know what. You're a sinner. Okay? Second question. Same thing. You're talking to that friend who's not a believer. And they say, you guys always talk about this Jesus guy. Who's Jesus? And all I want to do is explain it at the level they can for the age they are. What sin is, who Jesus is. Third part, what did he do? Somewhere in there, there has to be some concept. He died and was raised to life, right? Next question. If I want to become a Christian, how do I do that? And that's where you find out about the question of repentance and faith. Right? And then the final thing I ask, is this what you believe you've done? 
Now, can I let you on a little secret? I ask the same questions to adults because the questions are the same and the answer is the same. This, my friend, is the gospel and that's enough. You and I may not in any way change the gospel without corrupting the gospel. You can't change it without losing it. The problem here was a group of leaders and teachers who had followed Paul into Galatia, and they're teaching a different gospel. Now, it's funny, in the New Testament language, different can be said in two different ways. Isn't that fun? It can be different of the same kind or different of a completely different kind. Another of the same kind or another of a completely different kind. And when Paul says they're preaching another gospel, he's saying it's another of a completely different kind. It has no relationship, none, to the true gospel. Paul says they're teaching another of a different kind. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, 1, we read it this way. So men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There were some Jewish folks who claimed to believe in Jesus, but couldn't deal with the broadness of the gospel news, the good news to Gentiles who hadn't also become Jewish in practice. So the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, the question is, what do Gentile believers have to do to get along with their weaker brothers in this case, the Jewish folk who have come to faith in Christ? There was never designed to be a capitulation which led to Gentiles being under the law or somehow that they were second-class citizens of the kingdom until they do so. Now, why is it that this is such a big deal? Paul tells in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, I who would force you to be, excuse me, and that they'd force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, think about it. You've been Jewish all your life. You've been kosher all your life. You've tried to keep the law. You circumcised your sons on the eighth day. You did everything you were supposed to do. And you in faith look forward to the Messiah. The Messiah comes. You put your faith in this Jewish Messiah, but you find out he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah for the whole world. Well, that's okay. As long as... They do what we do and act the way we act, and they come in with us. Yes, you Gentiles, yes, you must believe in Jesus. However, if you really are truly converted, you really want to know Jesus in fullness, and you want to understand this, you need to start circumcising your boys, and you need to keep the law of Moses. Now, is that too big a deal? I mean, after all. My friend, Paul says, when you do that, you have corrupted the gospel. It is no longer the gospel. We're not sure of all that went into this group, but we do know this, my friend. Whenever it becomes Jesus plus something else, you have suddenly destroyed the good news.
Now, I know. We say, well, we don't do anything like that. Well, you don't say you have to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. We don't add anything. <laughs> no, we make up our own stuff. Jesus and baptism, you've corrupted the gospel. Now, should you be baptized if you believe the gospel? Absolutely. I was intrigued. Somebody says, well, what about Christians who aren't baptized? And I say, do you understand the New Testament didn't see such an animal ever? If you came to them and said, well, I'm a Christian, well, great, when were you baptized? Well, I wasn't. Why in the world not? Baptism was the public declaration that you'd come to faith in Christ. But baptism does not in itself save you. Baptism is the proof you have been saved. It is the outward evidence of that conversion, the public testimony. It's identifying with the people of God and with Christ. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Regardless of how you view the gifts my friend, when you make it Jesus plus something else, you have corrupted the gospel. The gospel cannot be changed. Therefore, we must never seek to change it. And if the world looks at us and says, well, I don't like that bloody cross. That's offensive to me. Then you're offended. Well, I don't like admitting I'm a sinner. That's offensive to me. Yes, it is and should be. I hope it offends you enough to know you've offended God. And then you ought to be worried. Offending you is a small thing, all things considered. Offending a thrice holy God is not safe. He didn't come for a discussion. <laughs> he didn't come to have a parlay. He came to say, this is my son, believe in him. Or die. The gospel cannot be changed. And while the gospel is not changeable, it's also true that the gospel creates, brings change. The first change it brings is our status before God. This is central, this is primary. Now, I've had people say to me, you, you worry about people thinking their works are getting them to heaven. We just got to get them, first of all, to believe that there's actually a God. And I'll say, well, here's my argument for that. You finally get them to believe there's a God. Can I tell you that their default setting after that is, what must I do to make this God happy? How do I get in good with this God? What must I do? Where's the list? Where's the checklist? What must I do? And here's the answer. You trust, you believe in his son. When the Jews of his own day, John chapter 6, Jesus talks about doing work and he talks about it and that he's come to do the work of God and this is after he's fed the 5,000, right? And they ask a great question. Well, what must we do to do the works of God? That's a great question. And what does Jesus say? Believe in the one he has sent. What does that do? My friend, all of the best you can muster in the entirety of your lifetime will not earn you a place with the Lord in glory. 
You can't do it. It is impossible. Your only hope is this gospel that our brother Luther described as outside of you. Justification by grace through faith alone. This was what caused the Reformation. The principle behind it is this the material cause. That is, this is what began it, because Luther said, you can't go telling people they've got to give this much money or see this particular saint or go do this particular act of contrition in order to get into heaven. There is no peace in doing all those things. Now, I know most of you said, well, I'm not praying to saints, and I don't have any acts of contrition, and I'm not going to go see any relics, and I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But how many of you are trying to read your Bible enough to impress God? How many of you are trying to pray enough to impress God? How many of you are trying to do church enough to impress God? You're trying to be good enough to impress God. God is not impressed. He is impressed by His Son. And when you trust Him, He is your righteousness. Do you think the Father is satisfied with His Son? Is that a reasonable conclusion to reach? If you're in His Son, guess what? He is satisfied with you. But I'm a mess. He is satisfied with you. I fail. He is satisfied because you're in His Son. My friend, this is the first change. And is this not the point of glorious gospel joy and surrender to know that my sins, all the past, everything I've done, everything I'm sinning in now, and every sin I will commit in the future is nailed to His cross and I bear it no more. It brings a change in relationships. There's no more dichotomy, Jew and Gentile. Paul actually has to confront Peter about it, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise. The promises to the Gentiles are fulfilled in Christ. Jews were actually under a tutor in the law, and all of us are the children of promise. I love that imagery used in chapter 4, Sarah versus Hagar. And we are all children of the promise. But you see, the gospel not only changes our justification, our status, and our relationships, it changes our behavior. Great freedom and liberty come with the gospel. How shall we then live? In the fifth chapter, Paul starts talking about living. And he uses this kind of language, verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out. You're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. You'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Folks, I think we make that harder than it is. What he's saying is when the Spirit of God has come into your life through regeneration and the work of God, and you've been justified by the work of Christ on the cross, and you have been changed inwardly, a new nature is granted to you. You want to please God. The Lord has changed your wanter. 
Now, I don't mean by that that we never still sin. We do. We, we mess up. We fail. We still have the flesh to deal with. There's still an element here that's true within us, and it breaks our hearts, right? The issue, my friend, is not your perfection. The issue is your repentance. Does your sin break your heart? That's a good indication the grace of God's at work in you. See, if you can sin with indifference, don't tell me you know Jesus. I don't think that's possible. This isn't just about our personal character. It's also about how we relate to one another. See, it's not hard to know what sin is. I think somehow this gets missed. Paul will actually say in that same fifth chapter of Galatians, he talks about the desires of the flesh. They're opposed to one another. Um, And then he talks about the works at verse 19. He gives kind of a list And he says they're evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love the way Paul does that at the end. He he puts it in there. I didn't give you an exhaustive list. I just got you started and stuff like this. If you're a Christian, you know what that stuff is. You know it's sinful. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is what he does. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christian, this is the joy that we celebrate this day. This is our gospel and the only gospel we have. And I pray, God, the only gospel that is ever proclaimed from this place, Christ alone. Now, let me conclude this way. How does this impact us? I know sometimes folks still struggle. Well, I ought to work at holiness. Yes, you should. I don't think I'm very good at it. I agree with you. Because I know I'm not. You just keep going. And I know Russell Moore has fallen out of favor with some, but I heard Russ use this illustration a few years ago, and I thought it was very, very helpful. When he and his wife adopted two little boys from Russia, he talked about the experience. He said, we entered the orphanage slash hospital to a stench that made us both nauseous. Found our way to the boys' room. The boys were filthy, covered in their own excrement. They'd brought stuff to clean them up, as well as new clothes from their new grandparents that they'd sent for them. They cleaned up their boys, put on their new clothes, and picked them up to carry them to the car. The boys freaked out. They had never been outside the orphanage. They'd never been outside at all. The breeze scared them. The sun hurt their eyes and scared them. The car and the movement terrified them. They cried and cried as they drove away from the place of their confinement. They reached out for that awful place. 
All the while with Russ saying to them, boys, it's fine. That was a bad place. You're going home now. You have your own room and clean sheets and clean clothes and lots of food and a family waiting to love you and grandparents who will spoil you. Now that's powerful just emotionally and But see, our tendency is to want to go back to the orphanage. We look back to the old, ugly, filthy life we had with longing, even having been rescued, and still are tempted to go back to the old way of life. My friend, this is the glorious gospel of Christ. You have been freed. Everything you've failed, it's stamped on it. Not guilty. That'll almost make a Baptist a Pentecostal. Not guilty. And the work of the Spirit of God in you through that gospel is to wean you away from that where you lived and to help you love and live in this glorious freedom of the children of God. The immutable, (laughs) the effectual gospel. My friend, if you don't know Christ, I offer to you a Savior. I command you, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. It matters not what you've done. It matters not how big a mess you are. It matters not how many mistakes you've made, will make, or will continue to make. Hear me, there is a Savior for sinners, and the only qualified for you is that you're a sinner. That makes you qualified. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're a sinner, you're qualified. Run to him. He is enough. Father,